what's going on? It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Happy Wednesday. I'm Jamie Dodd. Drancer still off. He'll be back tomorrow. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game now found together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. My last day solo here uh, before Drance returns tomorrow. I do feel a little bit like, you know, when your partner goes away, goes out of town for a weekend or something, and you really just let it all hang out. You're living that life. No one else to answer to. No responsibilities. You're in complete control of your own destiny, uh, but that all ends tomorrow. Drance will be back tomorrow, but I'm also looking forward to it. Uh, lots to get into in the show today, and you can always get your thoughts in. As I mentioned, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Canucks win, or sorry, Canucks lose, excuse me, in overtime uh, last night in St. Louis. We'll talk about that. Uh, but the Canucks make a little bit of news today, adding another NCAA free agent signing defenseman, Akito Hirose, out of Minnesota State. Of course, they signed center Max Sasson earlier in the week. Today, we had heard Hirose's name in connection uh, with the Canucks from Elliot Friedman, from Rick Dollywall. Uh, Chris Peters, who I had on the show on Monday, said he was hearing the same thing. Now it is official. They have signed the left shot defenseman, Akito Hirose, out of Minnesota State to an entry-level deal. This one's a little bit interesting because Hirose, he's 23 now. He turns 24 uh, next week, I think, in early April anyways. So it's only a one-year entry-level deal. That, that was all he is eligible to sign based on the rules in the CBA. That means he's already going to be an RFA at the end of this season. Like, he's only under contract, technically, uh, for the remainder eight games of this year. Then he'll be an RFA. Won't be eligible for an offer sheet, so obviously still the Canucks retain a lot of control. And... I'm guessing, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the Canucks have already had conversations with Hirose about what that next deal is going to look like. He'll get a chance to be in a game or, you know, possibly more than that uh, in the final eight games of the season. The team's at home for a stretch here. They have a five-game homestand coming up, so they'll have some practice time. Uh, he'll get a chance to be around the team, get integrated, make his NHL debut at some point. And I actually do think, I, I, I saw some confusion online, like, wait, hold on, he's only signed for the remainder of this year, what's the benefit to that? But again, the Canucks surely have had a chance to talk to him about what that next deal looks like, and I think it's actually an opportunity for the team and the player to get a little bit creative if they want going forward on whatever that next deal looks like for Hirose, right? They're not just limited to, okay, well, we have to give you a two-year ELC because that's what the CBA says. Uh, they can be a little bit more flexible, whether that's you know a two-way contract, whether that's like, maybe going a little bit of term, a three-year deal at a number, something like that. They give they they give themselves a little bit of flexibility uh, and the chance to get creative with Akito Hirose going forward. Um, scouting report, as I've seen, and again, I talked to Chris Peters of Flow Hockey earlier in the week. Sounds like a smart puck mover, pretty decent skater, not a massive player, right? Six feet. Uh, his weight on Hockey DB listed at 170. That could be a little out of date. We'll see what he actually weighs in at. Uh, but somebody who's going to have to rely on his smarts, his hockey sense, his mobility in order to be a reliable defender. But you know what? In this day and age in the NHL, you cannot have too many guys who can skate and move the puck from the back end. And I'm not saying Hiroshi is going to be elite at that, 
that is somebody to roll the dice on, that's somebody to take a chance on. If you have those two attributes, it's worth getting the guy in the system and seeing what he can do. And I'm excited to see uh, when he gets into a game at some point for the Canucks here in the final eight games of the season. And the other thing is, you know, again, so he turns 24 in April. This is not a long-term play, right? Like, this is a guy who at least has the potential to be a member of the team next season. At the very least, he's going to be in the mix to make the team at a training camp. And you just look at all of the depth signings that the Canucks have made in general, but specifically now on the left side of their blue line. They already signed Christian Willan into an extension. They signed Guillaume Brisebois to an extension. You know, Jack Rathbone technically still is still under contract for next year. I know he hasn't been a big part of their plans this season, but he is under contract for next year. We've talked about OEL this week. Obviously, he is still very, very much under contract. So there's not a lot of room for all of the guys they have currently signed for next season. And I think that's going to create a really interesting competition on the left side and going to create some good organizational depth in Abbotsford as well. But Hiroshi absolutely will figure into that mix as one of the guys competing, competing for a spot on the left side of the blue line going into next season. All right, that's Akito Hiroshi. We'll get more updates on that. Uh, I would expect him to have a meeting with the media, maybe be on this station at some point in the next couple of days as well. So keep a lookout for that. On to last night. Canucks lose. They come back, as they have done many times this year. They're down 5-2, come back, tie it late in St. Louis, uh, but they do lose thanks to a quick... Vrana goal for the Blues, 6-5 in overtime. One of the rare high-event games we've seen from the Canucks recently. It's been a lot of pretty buttoned-down, relatively boring hockey, and that's not an insult. That Canucks could have used some boring hockey early in the season, and we've seen our fair share of it since Rick Tockett took over. That was not that last night. There was a lot of shots, a lot of scoring chances in that game, a lot of goals. Obviously, it ends 6-5. As a result of the loss, Canucks now tied with St. Louis and Detroit at 500, all three teams have 74 points in 74 games. Uh, the Canucks fall down below those two teams because of the tiebreakers, but that's where things stand. They're in eighth place right now, technically in a three-way tie with St. Louis and Detroit, who are in ninth and tenth. So it is going to be very, very fascinating. It's going to be very thin margins uh, to see who stays in the bottom ten, to see what the final numbers uh, on the lottery percentages are for the Canucks in these final eight games the story of the game last night for me though even in the loss it was Quinn Hughes another three points two goals he was a monster played a ton as he has done a lot under Rick Tockett always tilts the ice in the Canucks direction he's now up to 72 points in 70 games and it it got me thinking like we've tended to look at it and always with Quinn Hughes say you know he's a future Norris candidate That's somebody who could play at a level to become a future Norris candidate. But when you look at what he's done this season in total, and it did take him a little while to heat up, so especially in the last, I don't know, three months or so, I don't think he's a future Norris candidate. I think he's a present Norris candidate. He's a right now legitimate Norris candidate this season. Now, I fully admit and accept that Eric Carlson is almost certainly going to win this award, right? And I know there's a debate there about his defensive impact, about the team he's on. But when you're that far ahead in defenseman scoring, you're probably going to win the North. But Quinn Hughes, you know, a lot of the same arguments in favor of Eric Carlson 
apply to what Quinn Hughes is doing. He's second in the NHL in scoring for defensemen this season. And I, I think we tend to, as soon as we see a defenseman who's relatively undersized, put up gaudy scoring numbers, we immediately assume that they're a disaster in their own end. And certainly we still get texts like that all the time here. 650-650 saying, ah, yeah, Quinn Hughes is great, but he can't defend. That's just not true. We heard Quinn Hughes himself last week reference that and say, hey, if you still think that, you're not paying attention. And that's 100% the case. This idea that he is all offensive value and no defensive value, and therefore he can't be a legitimate Norris candidate, that just doesn't match what's playing out on the ice night after night for Quinn Hughes and the Canucks. We all know what he does offensively, but even if you just look at the raw numbers, he's by far the team's most reliable defensive defenseman. Just in terms of suppressing scoring chances, suppressing goals, suppressing shot attempts, whatever you want to look at, the Canucks are giving up way less on the ice when Quinn Hughes is out there versus any other defenseman. And you, yeah, of course, a huge part of that is because he's so effective at transitioning the play and getting them going in the right direction. But that counts. You can't just wave that away and say, oh, well, that's not really defending. Anything that makes it harder for the other team to score on you, to me, that counts as defending. And Quinn Hughes is really, really good at that. And as we're just talking about, you know, Norris, a Norris candidacy for this season. And obviously, look, there's a bunch of other guys having fantastic seasons, like Adam Fox having another really good year. Rasmus Dallin has been excellent. Uh, Kale McCarr is great, always. Miro Heiskanen having a really good year. Eric Carlson. One of the things that impresses me is Quinn Hughes is doing what he's doing this year without a stable, reliable partner. And I know he played with Luke Shen, but we all saw the drop-off and what Luke Shen's game looked like when he was with Quinn Hughes versus not with Quinn Hughes, Right. And you compare it to what some of the other guys are playing with. Like Adam Fox has Ryan Lindgren. Ryan Lindgren, not a superstar, but a dependable, legit top four defenseman. A top four defenseman, not just because he's playing with Adam Fox, but in his own right, a top four defenseman. Rasmus Dahlin has a similar thing with Matias Samuelson. Even Miro Heiskanen has had a, you know, you can debate Colin Miller, but he has been a fit with Miro Heiskanen, and they've played a ton of minutes together. We obviously know Kale McCarr and Devontae is that partnership. Quinn Hughes, he's done it with Luke Shen, who's looked like just a completely different player away from Quinn Hughes. He's done it with Noah Juleson, and he's done it with Ethan Bear. He's done it with Tyler Myers. Quinn Hughes hasn't been partnered with a legit top four guy at any point this season. Now, you can make a comparison to Eric Carlson there as well. He played a lot with Jacob Magna when he was still in San Jose. So again, a lot of the same arguments apply that I'm using for Quinn Hughes apply to Eric Carlson, just more so. But if you're just looking for guys to fill out your ballot, Quinn Hughes has to be in that mix. He has to be in that discussion. And I think the fact that he can do it playing with not premium, not a premium partner, not even necessarily a reliable partner in terms of having the same guy out there all the time, that makes it very, very impressive for me. Now, look, there's a lot of good defensemen in the NHL, right? And there's only going to be three Norris candidates. I understand that. So to me, that's a nice bonus. It's exciting. It would be really cool if... Quinn Hughes is a Norris candidate, or eventually he someday wins the Norris. But when you're just talking about what it means for the Canucks going forward, that's not really the key thing. That's a nice cherry on top. But what is actually key is, beyond the awards voting, where does he just kind of rank in terms of NHL defensemen? I know Drance and I were doing this exercise a couple of weeks ago with Elias Pettersson, and 
just kind of fleshing out the tiers in my head of defensemen. I think it's pretty clear Kale McCarr, number one, with a bullet in a tier of his own as the best defenseman in the NHL. Then you look at that next group down, right? And I know Victor Hedman not having the strongest season necessarily, but you got to put Victor Hedman there. Like Charlie McAvoy, Roman Yossi, Adam Fox, probably Eric Carlson again after this season, Rasmus Dahlin, Miro Heiskanen. But to me, Quinn Hughes is right there of all of those players. And if you're going to still lean, you know, if we're talking, hey, who would you choose to help you win a playoff series and you're still going to lean like, well, hey, I would take Victor Hedman. Yeah, I get that. He has the experience. He has the track record. He has all of that. McAvoy, more of a two-way guy. I get that. But I think you can make a argument, a very, very strong argument for Quinn Hughes to fit right in with that group of elite defensemen. However you slice it, wherever you put him in that tier, he belongs in that tier. And that's the key thing. He belongs in that group of, for me, no doubt about it, top 10 defensemen in the NHL, just like Elias Pettersson at his position. No doubt about it, top 10 center in the NHL. That's the key. I'm not too fussed where you say, well, Quinn Hughes is five or Quinn Hughes is eight, whatever. He's in that mix where he is absolutely elite at his position and he can be your best defenseman on a Stanley Cup contending team. That's what matters. That is what we have answered beyond a shadow of a doubt with Quinn Hughes and his performance this season. When he's at his best, he can be that guy, and he's still relatively young in the NHL, so you can expect that performance going forward. And, you know, thinking about what Quinn Hughes is doing this year, what Elias Pettersson is doing this year, and even what Thatcher Demko has done since he's come back into the lineup, not his strongest game last night, but generally he has been very, very strong since he got healthy and started playing again. And I think we're still kind of waiting to hear what the official word on expectations for next season is from the Canucks, right? Coming into this season, it was very clear from Bruce Boudreau and the players. It was, it would be a disaster to miss the playoffs, and we all know how that worked out. When Patrick Alvin spoke after the trade deadline, he had to be kind of cornered a little bit into saying, well, we want to make the playoffs next year. It wasn't an emphatic, unequivocal the playoffs are our goal. And we'll see how that message and how that expectation develops from the team in the offseason. But as I sit here right now and just look at what Quinn Hughes is doing, what Elias Pettersson is doing, and again, what Thatcher Demko is doing, and the fact that you now have the hand-picked coach, right? The no doubt about it, this is our guy who we want coaching, who we think can bring the best out of the team. You have the coach in place, and... You've gone out and made a big acquisition in Philip Ronick. You've retained Andre Kuzmenko. You've added talent to this team for next year. When you add up all of those factors, I, like, I don't really need to see what transpires over the summer. From this point on, the goal has to be make the playoffs. The expectations, the absolute baseline expectations has to be to make the playoffs. It would be brutal if you get anything close to the level of performance that you're getting right now from Pedersen and Hughes, if you get that again next season and you don't make the playoffs, after, again, having committed draft pick capital to Philip Ronick, committing cap space to Andre Kuzmenko, making all of those decisions, and you don't make the playoffs, that's going to be really, really devastating. Now, the good news is I think sometimes we get caught in this dichotomy where you're either – rebuilding and tanking and you're trying to be bad and you're trading all the way your players or you're trading all your first round picks and you're spending every last cent of cap space that you have and you're going out 
an unrestricted free agency and you're buying a third-line center and you're buying a top-four defenseman, right? And those are the two poles, and you're always at one or the other. The good news is, look, we all know the Canucks aren't doing the first one. They're not doing the rebuilding thing. We understand that. I don't think they have to do the other one. Even if you accept that we have to make the playoffs next year, that it would be devastating to miss the playoffs next year, I don't think that means they have to go out and be reckless this summer with how they put together their roster. Because one of the great things about having superstar talent like Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson on the roster is they're so good, they can paper over some of the other flaws. Like, as I was just saying, Quinn Hughes is having this type of season, playing massive minutes with Luke Shen, Noah Juleson, Ethan Bear, Tyler Myers. And I know we all have this idea that, oh, man, you have to find Quinn Hughes' long-term partner. You have to find the legit top four guy that you compare with Quinn Hughes. That would be great. In an ideal world, you would have that. But when he can play like this, with the roster of partners he's had to work with this year, should that be a priority? See, I don't think that's something you have to panic to try to find this summer if your goal is to make the playoffs. Quinn Hughes has shown he can give you bona fide, clear-cut, number one defenseman performance and impact with cheap players next to him, with Band-Aid solutions next to him. And is that tough to saddle your franchise defenseman with players like that for another year? Yeah, it's not. again, it's not ideal. I admit that. But if he can do that and he can handle it and he can run with that responsibility and your goal is to make the playoffs, I think you have to embrace that. Same thing with Elias Pettersson, right? And now he's found the chemistry with Andre Kuzmenko. But, hey, Dakota Joshua gets the bump up. Looks pretty good. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Randy Bjanda is going to join me in about 10 minutes. I'll get his thoughts on how Dakota Joshua performed. But Elias Pettersson... And Quinn Hughes, they create an environment where you can have you can go bargain hunting. You can bring in relatively cheap, affordable, available players to fill roles next to them and still get a high level of performance. So to me, they allow you to do two things at once, right? You can compete for the playoffs next year and have legitimate expectations to make the playoffs. And you can be patient. You don't have to commit all of your cap space. You don't have to pay assets to get off some of the bad contracts this summer, right? Just so you can turn around and sign UFAs. You don't have to do those things just to make a desperate bid for the playoffs because you have three players who are capable of papering over a lot of your flaws. And I know you can look at it and say, well, hey, why didn't that happen this year? Well, a big part of it is Thatcher Demko was not himself, and then the goaltending obviously was not uh, performing particularly well. And then also, look, we can have whatever conversation we want about how the Canucks got rid of Bruce Boudreaux, but it was clearly not working. That coaching fit was not working. So if Elias Pettersson, healthy Thatcher Demko, new coach, Quinn Hughes, your baseline expectation next season should be to make the playoffs. And that's before we even get into well, yeah, but they got you know they got to move all that money and and bring in some new players. Like if you can do that, if you can do that in a relatively painless way, right? If you find a painless way to move on from Brock Besser, Connor Garland, Tyler Myers, hey, I'm all for that. But you can still make the playoffs even if all of those players are here next year. Even if you're spending all of that inefficient money, if you make some smart, cheap bets on the fringes of the roster to fill out this team, 
and support Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, those inefficient contracts, they're not an excuse anymore. Yeah, it's not ideal. Again, I completely understand that. And if the goal for next season was to be a Stanley Cup contender, then yes, you absolutely have to move those players and find more efficient, better fits. But if we're just talking playoffs, Brock Besser is not preventing you. Brock Besser on that deal is not preventing you from making the playoffs. Connor Garland on his deal, certainly not preventing you from making the playoffs. Even Oliver ekman Larson, the most onerous one, the one that has the most questions about, yeah, it's a bad contract, and he can even play in the NHL at this point. I don't even think that deal is, make, is preventing you from making the playoffs. When you have the head start that Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko provide. So that should be the goal. And the goal should be, again, to embrace the fact that Pedersen and Hughes give you the opportunity to be a little bit of patience, have a little bit of patience, right? Not feel the need to be desperate in the offseason. And you can still have confidence. You can still have confidence that you're going to be competitive and that the playoffs are a realistic expectation for you with this roster. That is the level that Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are at. And that's got to be the game plan for the Canucks going forward. Find some cheap depth around your stars. Lean on them to make the playoffs. Be patient. Keep your options open for the future. It's a tough needle to thread. It's a tough needle to thread. But Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes and the way they're playing, they give you the ability to thread that needle. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The Canucks are back in Vancouver. They will hit the ice for practice at 1 o'clock today, so we probably won't have time uh, to get any audio from players or coaches on this show, but we will get you an update, uh, any news and notes that come out of practice. Again, the final homestand of the season begins on Friday against Calgary to uh, look ahead to that final homestand. Talk a little bit about the game last night as well. He is the color commentator on Canucks games here on Sportsnet 650. Randeep Janda joins me next. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, solo for the last day this week. Drancer is back in tomorrow, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Randy Janda will join me in just a few minutes here. Uh, but first, I wanted to get into the Dunbar Lumber text line a bit a little bit my point was uh in the first segment that hey with Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko the baseline goal has to be making the playoffs and I would also add making the coaching change trading for Philip Ronick extending Andre Kuzmenko you do all of those things your baseline goal absolutely has to be for to make the playoffs some lots of good texts coming in uh, around that conversation, Brandon in Vancouver texts in, which teams would be falling out next year for us to make it? You also need to consider teams uh, that missed this year bouncing back, uh, like the Flames or the Jets, depending on which one misses it, or the Blues. That's from Brandon Vancou- in Vancouver. And I-, I understand that, but I would also counter that, you know, if you had, at the beginning of this season, you would have said the Flames were basically a lock to make the playoffs. They have a very good chance of missing it right now, right? You go back to last season Everyone would have said, oh, Vegas is going to make the playoffs. They didn't. 
there's always weird things that happened. And to me, it's, yeah, obviously you have to beat out at least seven teams, uh, or you have to be one of the top eight teams, I should say, in your conference to make the playoffs. But to me, it's less about kind of judging how you stack up against the individual other teams and just saying, hey, do we have a legit chance? Can we get to 97 points? 97 points is going to get you in. And you let the ch- the chips fall elsewhere where they may. Weird things happen. Injuries happen. Drama happens like we've seen in Calgary. There are going to be spots available for teams that have 97 points. So if you can strengthen your roster or be a team that's in that range, you're going to have a very, very good chance at making the playoffs. And who knows at whose expense it comes. Uh, this one. Is their goal to win a cup ever? Is it possible that making the playoffs now hurts your chances to win a cup later? It absolutely is possible, but that was my point, where Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are so good that I think you can do both. I don't think you need to go out and spend big in the UFA market, which would potentially hurt your chances to win a cup later, or trade more future assets to address the needs on your team when you have players playing at this level. So that's exactly the kind of needle I'm trying to thread here with this strategy is push for the playoffs next year without damaging your chances at long-term success. And I think Patterson and Hughes are good enough uh, that they can allow you to do both things. It is Canucks Talk, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. I'll get to them throughout the course of the show. But joining me now on the line, he is the color commentator here for Canucks Broadcast on Sportsnet 650, my guy, Randeep Janda. Randeep, what's going on, man? What's up, Jamie? I'm uh, actually on my way uh, to Rogers Arena for practice from the home of two hockey prodigies here in Vancouver. North Vancouver, known for Connor Bedard and one Jamie Dodd. Yes, yes. Two most prominent citizens Bro- of that. Broadcasting prodigy, Jamie Dodd. Yeah, well, oh, I mean, half of, uh, half of Vancouver sports media is from uh, North Van. But what, what were you doing in North Van, man? Well, uh, okay, this is probably a good time for a bit of a plug. I'm actually picking up my new Dod Soda merch. I, uh, I do oh, wow. with a company out in North Shore, so we got some new things coming out very, very soon, which I'm excited about. So I'm um, picking those up today. So, look, you, you brought up the North Van thing knowing, knowing that I would ask you what you were doing there just so you could sneak the Dud Soda plug in there. I still never had any, by the way. You have not hooked me okay. up with a taste. We got to change that. We got to change that. But also, Jamie, you know me. I'm a season pro at this game. I Come know on, you are. I know you are. You've got it on lockdown. Um, so I want to talk about the game last night a little bit and some of the things to look for for the remainder of this season. But, you know, my point in the first segment was – I don't know what they're going, what the management is going to say about the goal for next season, what the players and coaches are going to say going into next season at training camp. But when you have a top 10 center and a top 10 defenseman and a goalie like Thatcher Demko, I don't really care what they're able to do in terms of clearing cap space, in terms of bringing in new players, you know, moving some of the inefficient deals. When you have those three things and you've brought in your hand-picked head coach, like playoffs has to be the goal. No matter what happens this summer, playoffs has to be the goal. Do you agree? I agree with that. You look at what Elias Pettersson has been able to do this year. He looks like he's going to end off the season if he continues at this rate at, what, 106 points. Um, Quinn Hughes is, you know, one of six defensemen in NHL history to hit, or last 30 years anyways, to hit 70 points before the age of 24. He's in the conversation with Makar, Zubov, Carlson, you know, Mike Green, who is an excellent offensive defenseman. We're talking about a special, special player. And Thatcher Demko, you know, for anybody that doubted what he can be, he is 
shown that that early season funk, if we want to call it that, was based on probably, you know, health-related, right? Mm. Maybe he's not 100% to start off the year. So when you have those pillars, you know, up, really the spine of your team is set up and your top 10 positions at your, your um, you know, top 10 players at those positions, absolutely, that should be the goal. And I know Patrick Alvin did not necessarily forthcomingly, you know, come out and say, hey, yeah, the playoffs are the goal. He, he did essentially say that, but it took him a while. To yes, to it took some point. cajoling. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but that should be the goal when you have these players locked up, when they're at their, you know, entering their prime, probably a couple of years away from their prime, uh, especially with the centermen and the defensemen. Uh, I think that should be the goal based on the fact that, hey, if you've got those guys coming in with now Philip Hronick, you've got JT Miller coming into next year as well. Uh, that should be the goal, Jamie. There's, despite all those other areas that might be lacking in terms of depth, uh, you've got the toughest thing uh, to get in the NHL, which is star power. Go ask Detroit how they're doing without a surefire number one player to, to play alongside a Moritz Sider. Uh, it's tough, and the Vancouver Canucks have arguably two of those guys when it comes to defense and centermen. With Quinn Hughes especially, you know, what real one of the things that really sticks out to me is just when you look at who he's played most of his minutes with this season, like, you know, we all love Luke Shen as a guy, but we also see what his game looks like when he's away from Quinn Hughes, right? That's not necessarily someone you would choose to play on a, on a top pairing situation, and he's doing it with Noah Juleson now as well, right? Like, there's always been this idea that, oh man, the Canucks have to go out and find that long-term partner for Quinn Hughes who fits on his right side who's kind of a premium defenseman on his right side. But I look at it and, well, why not lean into having this guy who can get top-level performances out of almost anybody? Well, and the way that this team is built out from a cap perspective, it's going to be virtually impossible to pay a a premium price to get that guy next to him. And I know in Ottawa, you know, they traded for Mark Mathot, who was making pretty good money in Columbus, and it worked perfectly. They almost got to the Stanley Cup final by – trading for a player that was able to complement Eric Carlson well. But if you start following some of those really special defensemen across the league, you know, look at a John Carlson, similar, you know, defenseman, great on the power play, excellent when it comes to, you know, offensive play. Uh, he played with Brendan Dillon. He played with a few more other guys over the years. Uh, they end up winning a cup, but it's been a, uh, you know, a change for him on his side. Eric Carlson's a classic example as well. You know, this past year, had Jacob Megna there, but going back in previous years, Brendan Dillon pops up yet again, playing alongside him. And, and there's a bit of a laundry list of players that you've seen cycle through that area. So these special defensemen, and Quinn Hughes is a part of that conversation where, you know, you're so good at what you do. You're so good at moving the puck out of your own zone, making that pass, being dynamic. You really have to find somebody that can simplify their job. And Noah Juleson's done a good job of that, filling that void that Luke Shen left. But sometimes, you know, a couple of years ago, we thought, hey, could David Savard be the answer? Remember, he was a free agent. He ends up signing in Montreal at a discount. Even at that discount, he, he was not a, a very good pickup for them because he disappointed. You don't need to pay a premium. So I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, he can elevate any pairing he's on. So maybe a couple of years ago, as he was maturing, you're saying, okay, you need to get that defenseman that is maybe three or $4 million per year. I don't think you need that anymore. With Quinn Hughes, I think it's going to be Eric Carlson's trophy to win, the Norris Trophy, this year. But has Quinn Hughes done enough to at least put him in the conversation to be one of the nominees or, you know, in the top five on people's ballots? 
Definitely. I think when you look at Quinn Hughes and his progression as a defenseman, and we all look at the offense, we look at the playmaking, uh, we look at the goals that he scored uh, you know, last night, but it's not only about that. We've always seen that he's a special player. We expected him to grow in that regard after his rookie season, after what he did last year. But, Jamie, when we start looking at his defensive play and the way he's able to make those plays in, you know, when uh, an opposing team is attacking in transition – uh, I go back to a game against Nashville, which in overtime, he ends up making an excellent play behind the board, sorry, behind the, uh, the net, where just playing a physical brand of hockey, but not a bone-crunching hit. It's you separate man from puck, you, you take the body, and then you counter, uh, you know, you launch a counterattack. And he's been so good at playing that defensive, you know, more uh, defensively responsible this year, which is something that you look at his five-on-five goal differential, uh, that's evidence. You look at his plus minus, something that he definitely pays attention to. Uh, he's, I think, entered that conversation. Should he win it? Probably not. You know, there's a lot of really good defensemen across the league. A lot of guys that have put up points like Eric Carlson, a lot of guys that have maybe better offense to defense balance. You look at a Miro Haskinen, uh, but I would say he definitely deserves to be in that top five conversation based on the fact that he's not just an offense producer. He's a guy that has made huge strides defensively and we see that play out so it's interesting because you know for so long we focused on finding Quinn Hughes's partner now they go out and they make a big acquisition for a right shot defenseman Philip Ronick. I don't think that's he's going to be on Quinn Hughes's right side I think they're going to split them up going forward but now it seems more to have shifted with well okay who plays on the left side with Philip Ronick? and I know uh, Vladislav Gavrikov, the free agent, the Dan Milstein client, that name has gotten a lot of play. Of but if I'm the Canucks, I'm looking to go cheaper. I'm looking to go lower risk. And I'm going to throw two names at you, both with connections to Jim Rutherford and Pittsburgh. Brian Dumoulin, right. who's a UFA, and I know Pittsburgh fans are not impressed with his performance this year, but Brian Dumoulin and another UFA uh, who was in Pittsburgh when they were winning Stanley Cups, uh, Ian Cole, both on the wrong side of 30, you know, not glamorous names, but also guys that, you know, Jim Rutherford built a Stanley Cup defending defense around, uh, defense with. So what do you think about either of those options as potentially cheaper, lower-cost options in free agency for the Canucks? Well, looking at both of those guys, and Brian Dumoulin, remember, he walked into Pittsburgh being pretty much an unknown, yeah. right? He He was somebody that not only won Cups there, but it was one of those buy-low options that Pittsburgh you know, enacted. Same with Ian Cole. Uh, but if I were to look at both of those options, I think Ian Cole might be better suited at this point in his career. Remember, playing in Tampa Bay, uh, he's kind of following the Luke Shen uh, journey, right? Where a guy goes to a competing team, um, you know, is not a main player there. However, uh, he has been able to fill that void, play a little bit, um, and, you know, still somebody that I think, at his age, would be able to be serviceable for a year to two. You don't have to pay a premium. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Dumoulin's there as well, but his game has dropped off significantly over the last couple of years. And really, his second stint in Pittsburgh has not gone, gone well. Remember, he left to New Jersey, and they, and they reacquired him. Uh, that second stint is not as smooth as the first one. So I, I don't mind either of those names, especially based on the fact that you're not going to pay a premium at this point in time. There's the, the elephant in the room. That is the Oliver Ekman Larson contract. Mm-hmm. What does you know happens in the off season? Uh, is a buyout something that's considered? Do you uh, take his the gleam in his eye seriously as Rick Tockett has uh, and bring him back next year and to see you know where he fits? If you're bringing back Oliver Ekman Larson, you're probably at the very least at the start anyways giving him that second pair option. 
Um, and But that doesn't hold you back from bringing in some veterans that can eventually, you know, usurp him there on that second pair if he doesn't pull his weight or if it doesn't work out. So I think both of those names, that's what the Canucks should be looking at, giving up term, uh, finding penalty killers on free agency. You know what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to pay a premium, and you're probably going to have to give up some serious term. Uh, the veteran options, I like those options because it's low risk, and honestly, you could probably get it done in a, a, a one-year contract yeah. or a two-year contract. That, that's the key for me, right? If you can keep that term down and avoid those mistakes that are going to be hurting you years into the future, uh, that that's really the key for this summer. And, hey, Brian Dumoulin just needs Rick, Rick Tockett's structure uh, to get his name or get his game back on uh, on track. Uh, in conversation with Randy Abjanda of Sportsnet 650 here on Canucks Talk, what are you made of, uh, of Philip Ronick's game and his impact so far in his short tenure with the Canucks? Yeah, I think the first three games, obviously a, a better representation of what you want to see. The, the, you know, last night was a, a bit of a gong show, <laughs> to yeah. put it kindly, uh, defensively, especially early on in that game. That second period kind of reminded you of maybe earlier on in the year. But I, I think he's been, you know, through the majority of the games, just steady, which is exactly what you want. You want a player that is comfortable on the puck. And for many years, for I'd go, you know, three, four years, the Canucks haven't had many of those players where, you're saying, all right, the puck's going into the corner. Is this guy composed enough to make the right decision? If he takes a half a second longer, you trust him to make the right decision. And Philip Hronick is going to make his mistakes. You know, watching some Detroit hockey uh, earlier this year and covering them in games against Toronto, uh, Philip Hronick is, is tidy. He's definitely comfortable, but he's going to uh, have the puck on his stick. And what do we know about players like that? They're going to give away the puck. Sometimes it's going to be quite egregious. But at the same time, the good outweighs the risk big time. And this is a player that I think once we start to see a little bit more of that offensive game, he's not shooting much right now. Um, I think we'll appreciate more what he has to offer. But when you can play, what, 23 minutes last night, 24 consistently during his time in Vancouver, over time that's going to lessen the burden on Quinn Hughes. And one area of his game that we did see a little bit yesterday is stick checks. He is very good with his stick uh, defensively. And that's something that, you know, the art of defending has been very, very uh, seldom seen in Vancouver over the last <laughs> three or four years. And Philip Ronick is going to bring good body position and stick checks uh, in Vancouver. And that's something that Adam Foote and Sergey Gonchar have been, you know, creating that one-on-one time with a lot of these players trying to teach him that. Ronick comes into Vancouver already doing that quite well. Uh, Dakota Joshua gets the bump up to the first line with Elias Pettersson and Andre Kuzmenko last night. Uh, some high praise recently for Rick Tockett talking about how, you know, hey, if he clicks there, he'll be, he'll be able to pay his mortgage uh, for a long time if he can succeed in that role. What did you think about his performance in St. Louis? Uh, I love the way that he initiated and started off the game really, really well. You know, taking the puck off of Colton Pareko. Uh, later on in the game, he does the same thing with his long reach to Nick Letty. So being the first forward in, being that F1, a disruptive element, he can get there. The question is, can he get there consistently enough? And I think he can. We, he's shown in his short time here in Vancouver, he can be that disruptive element. Now, from an effort perspective, from a skill perspective, I think from a playmaking perspective, we've seen Dakota Joshua do you know, good things in Vancouver, picking up 11 goals and nine assists. The question I do have in his game, though, is, you know, when you're playing with skilled players in the top six, the standard is that much higher. Where you get one or two opportunities, you're expected to score. And yesterday, some really good moments uh, in the first period. He's in front of the net, gets a tip on the puck, uh, does a good job there. 
uh, just kind of trickles wide. Uh, we see him late in, in that game being in front of the net, providing a screen, helps out Quinn Hughes on, on that goal late in the game. But does he have the finishing ability that you want to see consistently enough in that top six? And, and you know, a couple of moments in that game were some really good chances. Um, and I think that's what you want to see. But, Jamie, you know, after a couple of games, this market, everybody watching is saying, all right, you're going to have to score a couple of those if Pedersen hooks you up with a great pass or Kuzmenko does. So I like what I saw, but I do wonder about that, you know, that 20-goal score comment, for sure. You know, there's, there's been some really skilled, you know, big-body players that have been able to put up goals. You look at Tom Wilson, uh, Pat Maroon, when he was in Edmonton playing with Connor McDavid, uh, had a great season, 27 goals. Uh, some skill in his game. You go, you know, across the league, we've seen those guys but you got to make sure that you put the puck in the net. Otherwise, that that stay in the top six isn't going to last long. You know, but see, to me, like, I hear you, and you're right about how fans are going to react, and there does have to be that bottom line. But as long as the Pedersen-Kuzmenko duo is still effective, you know what I mean? And he's helping them be effective, which they were. They were last night. Like, that's the key thing for me is just that the line itself is still popping in goals. But I I also hear what you're saying. Some of them got to go in off Joshua at some point, too. But the difference between him and Bavilia, and Bavilia, when he was going, he was getting into those areas of tipping the puck. He was doing well with retrievals in front of the net. And he, he went away from that the last week or so here. Uh, Dakota Joshua is not going away from that. So as long as you do that, and you're right, as long as that line is in the positive, it's going to be, um, you know, a, a, I think a, the ability for that line to stay intact. However, uh, you know, what really helps you and what helps you get that mortgage in Vancouver, as, as Rick Tockett uh, mentioned is if you can pop some goals in and you can be a part of that production, then that staying power uh, really, really, I think is, is going to be something that uh, Dakota Joshua won't have to worry about. He's going to be a fixture in a top six as long as he can get those goals. Randy, appreciate the time, man. Enjoy Canucks practice, and uh, I'll, I'll be on the watch for the new Dud Soda gear. All right, thank you. North man's finest, Jamie John. That's right, that's right. Uh, that is Randy Janda, Sportsnet 650 color commentator, also, of course, a part of uh, Hockey Night Punjabi every Saturday as well. Thanks to Randeep for joining the show. It's Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd in solo, no drance until tomorrow. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, this text comes in. I was talking about Quinn Hughes, the level he's at right now in the first segment is he knocking on the door of being a Norris candidate this year Johnny from Langley texts in Hughes is a treat to watch all over the ice Canucks fans don't know how lucky we are to have a player like this guy I hear what you're saying in the fact that he might still be underrated a little bit even in this market I will say you know how many times have we heard and it's absolutely true Canucks fans have never seen in Canucks colors a defenseman who comes close to being able to do the types of things that Quinn Hughes can do. So I do think there's an appreciation for how rare it is to have a guy on your blue line who is this dynamic, who's this elite offensively, and what he can do and how he can help your team. Maybe he's still a little bit underrated, but I think there are plenty of people to recognize uh, we're watching something special here, especially when you look at the history of Canucks defensemen. Scott texts in, hey, Doesn't Quinn Hughes just get pushed down in the games that matter? No. (laughs) No, he doesn't. Now, it's not a big sample size. And you can choose, you know, how much the bubble playoffs actually represented a real playoff standard. But in those playoff games, Quinn Hughes was fantastic. He was dynamite. Hughes and Pedersen were both fantastic 
in the bubble. And again, it's it's a relatively small sample size. Hasn't had the chance to do it since then. Were those exactly like the real playoffs? I, I know Patrick Alvin has weighed in on that. But you can't watch those series and say that it wasn't a step above, a cut above regular season hockey. And Quinn Hughes didn't just survive. He thrived in that environment. I completely reject the idea that Quinn Hughes cannot be an effective playoff defenseman because of his size. He has shown... Like, we're not, we're not early in Quinn Hughes' career now, right? Not really. This is his fourth full season. If teams are going to be able to figure out how to neutralize Quinn Hughes because he's small for a defenseman, it would have happened by now. He's too smart. He's too skilled to allow that to happen. He knows how to work around that, and he can still be an elite, productive player. Yes, even in the playoffs at his size. I am not concerned whatsoever about that. Paul and Coquitlam texts in, uh, what do you think Quinn Hughes's ceiling is? On a good Canucks team, I could see him exceeding 100 points at some point. That's from Paul in Coquitlam. Well, 100 points is a huge, huge bar for a defenseman. It has been a while. Now, Eric Carlson's threatening it this year, but it's been a while since we have seen somebody uh, on the blue line check in at 100 points. So I don't know if I'm going to go there, but I mean, you look at it this year, he's over a point per game. He's not going to play. I think he can max out at 78 games, but he's still probably going to crest 80 points. The interesting one for me with Quinn Hughes, just in terms of individual statistics, individual accolades, the Canucks all-time record for assists in a season held by Henrik Sedin, I want to say it is it's 83, 83 assists in a season uh, that was, of course, in the 2010 season where he won the Art Ross and the Hart Trophy. That's the franchise record for assists in a season. Quinn Hughes is going to threaten that at some point in his career. Like 65 assists in 70 games, right? So he's just shy of not just a point per game, but an assist per game for this season. I think sometime in the next three seasons... I think there's a legit shot that he takes a run at the Canucks single season assist record. And that would probably put him around the 90 point threshold. So that's what I would kind of look at as, again, just in terms of statistical production, a peak Quinn Hughes type season. And I understand this is already a peak Quinn Hughes season, but the absolute upper threshold, I'm guessing around that 90 point, maybe taking a run at Henrik Sedin's single season assist record. Uh, it's Canucks Talk. Keep your thoughts coming in 650-650. Some more good questions and thoughts about Quinn Hughes, which I will get to. But joining me next, Mike Kelly of the NHL Network and Sport Logic. Always enjoy chatting with Mike uh, about some of the playoff races and other things going on around the NHL. That's coming up next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Vancouver sports fans. Halford and Bruff in the morning. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd here. No Thomas Trance. He's back on the show tomorrow. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at DLEAMC.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. 
Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, as previous guest Randeep Janda mentioned, Canucks just about to get on the ice uh, at Rogers Arena for a 1 o'clock practice today. They don't play again until Friday in Calgary. We will keep you updated of any news and notes coming from that Canucks practice. You can always get your thoughts into the Dunbar Lumber text line as well. But joining me right now uh, from the NHL Network and Sport Logic, he is Mike Kelly. Mike, thank you as always for making time for us. How are you? Hey, one North Van guy to another. I'll always make Really? I did not that. I did not realize that. Yeah. Well, there Edgemont you go. Village. As I said, it's they are. Uh, yeah, I was. I was just up at the hill, so there was something going on in the water there because they. We are heavily overrepresented in uh, certainly the local media here, and now apparently beyond the go. local media as well. I had no idea, but uh, now I'll I'll start having you on even more, Mike. Now that I know this, um, <laughs> I, I wanted to start with the uh, the Western Conference playoff race, if race is exactly the right word, given how the teams at the bottom of it are performing, and man, Winnipeg. They get shut out 3 nothing in San Jose last night. What has gone wrong with the Winnipeg Jets? Well, they can't score right now. That's their biggest problem. Um, they, you know, I've, I've been looking at this stretch of play that they've had. Uh, it's going, been going on for quite some time where they're 13-17-2 since uh, we're going back a couple months at that point since early January. And they've got the, the lowest goals for in the league in that time. So, you know, I've looked at their chance creation. It's not bad. Um, there really seems to be a disconnect there. I mean, that, that press conference that Rick Bonus gave after the last game was one of the most telling press conferences I've seen him give all year. And you know, he talked about uh, needing more from guys, the inconsistency from certain guys. Didn't say the team, said, you know, certain players. And... A reporter brought up a question about, you know, the way that Dylan DeMello talked about they need more shots, and Mark, Char- Mark Shifley talked about, you know, the way that his game is, which is holding on to the puck and waiting for quality. And, and Bonus kind of rolled his eyes as the question was being asked when he heard that part. Um, it seems like there's a real disconnect in, in, you know, how they think that they should play to win. And uh, and their best players just, you know, haven't been great lately. Like, I, I look at Shifley because I think he's the guy on that team that can give them the most, that can be the most impactful for them, certainly at the forward position. And ever since he got sat in Carolina a couple a couple weeks back, um, he's had you know the worst stretch of his season to this point since then, which is not the kind of response you want from a guy that you really need to depend on. You know, and it's kind of funny because it feels like we've been here before with the Winnipeg Jets, and just as recently mm-hmm. as last season, right? The the talk of discontent from Blake Wheeler and Mark Shifley and obviously the coaching change. And, you know, at a certain point, do you just have to kind of step back and say, well, clearly like we've made the coaching change. We've, we've changed systems. We thought it was all going well. Now we're back to square one a little bit. Do you just have to kind of take a step back and maybe finally bite the bullet and make some bigger changes to the roster? Maybe Um, we'll see what the the end of the season brings here. Right. I think that's certainly going to be a, a potential, an option, and, you know, maybe Winnipeg turns things around here and goes into the playoffs on a bit of a roll and, and can make a little bit of noise. Um, the, the way they were playing the first half of the season, I, I thought they were a legit contender in that central division. And, and they've completely gotten away from that. So, you know, you get, the, you get the sense. It's almost like, 
you know, a new teacher comes into a class that, that, and nobody can figure out how to get these kids to, to get up to their potential. And, uh, and a new teacher comes in and it looks good. And, and now, you know, it, Rick Bonus, given what he's talking about, it seems more like it's, it's where Paul Maurice was at when he basically said, I don't know how to get anything else out of these guys. I think they need a new voice. Um, it seems to be closer to back there than it is, you know, where they were earlier in the season when they looked really good and everyone seemed committed to, to playing, you know, the way that they were being told to play and, and they, were, they were putting up good results. Uh, looking further up the standings in the Western Conference, you know, the the teams that aren't in the wild card, that are top three in their respective divisions, they're all actually playing pretty well right now. And, it, and it, it's setting up to be an exciting uh, playoffs in both conferences at this point. Based on what you're seeing right now, who who do you have as the, the favorite or the favorites uh, to come out of the Western Conference? Uh, I like Colorado. I don't think that's surprising. No. I like L.A., I like LA and I like Edmonton. Those are my top three. Uh, if you're just talking about like the way they play, like everything about them. Uh, those, and you know what? LA and Edmonton are, you know, potentially probably going to play mm-hmm. in the first round. So I, I wish they didn't because I really like both of those teams. One is a juggernaut offensively and the other one's a juggernaut defensively. And uh, that's going to be a heck of a juxtaposition if they end up playing each other in that first round. So, uh, no matter who comes out of that series, if they do play each other, um, they, I think they have a good shot to potentially win the West. And then Colorado, to me, is the team that's separating themselves. I know Minnesota's still winning. Minnesota is still picking up points. Matt Boldy is playing out of his mind. Their goaltending is great. Their defense is good. Um, I still think Colorado wins the division. Then you get Dallas Mini. That'll be a tough series for both. But the three teams that kind of scare me in, in one way or another would be L.A., Edmonton, and Colorado. What has clicked for L.A. recently? Because I know early in the season there was some thought you know, maybe they were playing a little bit above what their underlying numbers suggested, but they have been one of the hottest teams in the league. And as you said, they look really scary going into the playoffs. What has gone right for L.A.? Yeah, so they needed a goalie. I mean, it, at the trade deadline, they had the worst goal saved above expected of any team in the, in the NHL. And yet they were still at the 600 plus point yeah. percentage. And like teams don't make the playoffs with the worst goaltending in the NHL in that metric, it doesn't happen. And there they are battling for top spot. That gives you an idea of how good the rest of the team is. So they knew it. They went out and got not only Corpus Allo, but Gavrikov to help an even better defensive team be stronger and now we're seeing them, you know, right up at the top of the league, if not first since the, the trade deadline and points percentage. They're, they're ripping it up. Um, offensively, they're a top 10 team in goals. They're closer to bottom 10 in terms of what they create, their, their process. So they are, you know, a little above maybe where they should be in that sense. And they've certainly been shooting the lights out lately. Um, they've got good players, though, and they can finish as well. So. You know, maybe they're a team that can kind of go beyond that a little bit to some degree. I still think they're going to win with defense and goaltending, and that's where it gets fascinating. I mean, if we're talking about potentially Kopitar and Dowdy going up against McDavid and Dreisaitl um, and all the rest of it, that's that's probably going to be my favorite first-round series to watch if it happens. Yeah, that, well, I mean, any, based on what we saw out of McDavid and Dreisaitl last postseason, like that's going to be mm-hmm. appointment viewing no matter who they play because that was just absolutely – uh, sensational in conversation with Mike Kelly of the NHL Network and Sport Logic here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet.
650. And jumping over to the Eastern Conference, and again, I'll start with the the wild card race, which I don't know if it, it, it's quite as dreadful as uh, as the Western Conference wild card race, but there is a little bit of that. But the team that has the best the wild card race, yes, Let's yes, go. very well put, yeah, very well put. The team has, that has the best grip on things right now are the New York Islanders, and. You know, it's interesting. We've talked a lot out here about Bo Horvat not exactly lighting the world on fire statistically since he's gone to the Islanders. We know Matt Barzell is out as well, and yet they look like they're going to hold on and make the playoffs. What What's happened uh, to allow the Islanders to sustain this type of performance? Yeah, it starts with their goalie, Sorokin. He's a Vesna candidate this year, and, and I think should probably be a top three guy. They... Uh, They've been great without Matt Barzell, which, you know, a testament to the team. He's easily their most dynamic offensive player, and they're just humming along without him. I mean, they're averaging four goals a game in their, in their last five and, um, you know, putting up decent chances as well. And, and uh, defensively, uh, in terms of goals against, at least they're, they're playing very well. Um, I, they're not the defensive team that they had been under Barry Trotz. And, uh, I always stuck up for them in those years. People talked about differentials in certain areas, whatever. Um, that never bothered me because they had a very clear way of defending, which was you can have the puck in our end and you can shoot it as much as you want. Uh, we're not giving you the types of chances that we know can hurt us. And they didn't. Um, and, and they were able to win that way. This team's a little different. Um, they give up more. They don't create quite as much. But the, the third line I'll go to especially um, has been really good like Parise, 20 goals. Who would have seen that coming this season? Um, Hudson Fashing has, has found new life uh, out there as well. So they're, they're getting contributions from a lot, of, a lot of different places. It's not going to be an easy task for any team, but of the teams out east, who do you think has the best chance at knocking off the Bruins in a best-of-seven series? Ooh, that's a great question. Um I might say New Jersey. All right. Yeah. Like, you know, Carolina missing Sveshnikov really hurts them. And they're a really good team. Uh, I've never really pegged them as a team. Like, uh, I think could, should win a Stanley Cup. They're always in the mix. I, I don't want to downplay how, how good they are. But just if I talk about, you know, tier one Stanley Cup contenders, I've always got them kind of at the top of tier two. And, Look, Rangers are playing really well. Like Toronto, Tampa, one of them is going to be gone. Yep. Um, I don't. I don't think Toronto can do it if they get through. And Tampa, I'm really worried about Tampa Bay the way they're playing. I'm. I'm not sure they get through round one this year. So um, that kind of leaves you with New York and New Jersey, and and I think Jersey would have to be at its complete A game, um, pretty much the whole time. Anybody would be, but they're so explosive offensively, and they defend really well too. So if Vanacek can kind of equal Allmark and goal, um, New Jersey defends well enough and they're dynamic enough offensively that I probably would side with them if I had to pick somebody. Yeah, the firepower that New Jersey can bring to bear, especially obviously now with Timo Meyer in the mix, is really, really impressive. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, some end-of-season awards stuff as well, Mike. And I, I kind of led the show today talking about you know, Quinn Hughes, we always peg him as a future Norris candidate here in Vancouver, but you look at what he's doing right now and the points he's racking up, the minutes he's playing, the impact he's having. Like, to me, he might be a present-day Norris candidate, and I understand that Eric Carlson is probably going to take this one when just you look at how overwhelming his advantage in the scoring race is, but 
does Quinn Hughes have a legit uh, a legit argument to be in the, at least the top three of Norris voting now? I wouldn't put him top three this year, but I absolutely love where you're going. And um, I think Eric Carlson be, should be slam dunk number one. He might yep. hit 100 points. He might lead the league in even strength scoring. Like, I know. It's, it's I just incredible. He, I know. I checked this yesterday. I might be a point or two off right now, but he was one point behind McDavid. Like, he's right there, and he's led the league for most of the year in even strength points. You want to talk, and I'll, I'll talk about Carlson just real quick because a lot of it, I think, ties to Quinn Hughes. Yes. You want to talk about Carlson? Oh, he doesn't defend and what have you. I mean, he, he's been on the ice for more goals for than he has against. He's actually got really strong individual impact defensive metrics, like the blocking passes and, and stick checks and, and battles and all those kind of things. He's on a god-awful team and somehow has a positive goal differential at five-on-five, five, let alone what he's doing offensively. So I'll go to Quinn Hughes. He's been on for 20 more goals than he has against a five-on-five. He has a positive expected goals differential. The process is good, too. He possesses the puck as much, if not more, than any other player in the NHL. So does he make mistakes sometimes? Does he turn it over? Absolutely. I don't look at turnovers when a guy has the puck that much. I look at turnover rate. How Mm. often does he turn it over relative to how much he has it? 11th lowest in the NHL among defensemen with 1,000 minutes. He said it himself. He's not a defensive liability, and he's not. And he's one of the best puck-moving D in the league. He's in the Yossi, Makar, Carlson category in the top bin of all defensemen in the league. His second half has been absolutely brilliant. If it was second half on, maybe he's in my top three. Um, for the year, he's in my top 10 for sure. Maybe even top five. Um, but I look at, you know, Darlene and Fox and McAvoy and Carlson, uh, Hamilton. Um, you know, that's probably where I'm leaning for a top five, if that was, was even five. Quinn's right there. And, and I, I said it from his rookie year. I think he'll, he'll win or definitely be a finalist uh, at some point in his career. He's awesome. And I don't know why we kind of, a guy's super good offensively. We just assume he's bad defense. Yeah, 100%. And, and try to break him down, right? Like, I made that same point. As soon as, if you're six feet or under and you're a defenseman and you're racking up points, people, oh, he's bad defensively, though. Well, wait, hold on. What? <laughs> no, he's not. I know. Just because he's like, a little bit got, smaller. We got, yeah, we got Quinn Hughes here. He, he's one of the best puck moving D in the league, one of the best offensive D in the league. The guy's slippery as anything. Oh, but, you know. He's not really Yogan, Jonas Siegenthaler when it comes to defending, so maybe yeah. we should just you know punt the whole conversation. Yeah, and the other There's thing a lot is teaching what Quinn Hughes does to anybody else. Yeah, and, and with the Eric Carlson conversation this year, you know it's you know well you know it's you can't just look at the offense from a defenseman. It's like sure, but you do have to look. You can't ignore it either. And when he's that far ahead in terms of even strength scoring, it adds up. The point you made there about Quinn Hughes and just how much he carries the puck, and I think that that applies a little bit to Eric Carlson too. When you look at the rest of the blue line on those teams, those guys are just they carry such a burden. They're asked to do so much, and I think that that holds a lot of weight for me. And I would look at Quinn Hughes. You know, the guys he's playing with, like Luke Shen, all of a sudden looks like a legit top four guy next to Quinn Hughes. You know, Noah Juleson, he's playing a lot with right now, looks like a legit NHL player next to Quinn Hughes. That ability to elevate anybody he plays with in big minutes really stands out for me about Hughes's game this year. You make an excellent point. You you really do, and. And not to take anything away from some of the best defensemen in the league, but it's just a reality. Some guys play on better teams. Some guys yeah. play with better partners. Devon Taves is a top 20 defenseman in the NHL. He maybe is top 10. Like he's, he's awesome on his own. And Kale McCarr gets to play with him and a bunch of minutes with McKinnon and Ranton and other guys too. 
And that's great. I'm not saying Kale McCarr is not the best D in the league. I think he is. Um, but that is a reality. And, and you bring up a good point on uh, other defensemen. Like Victor Hedman, some of the guys he's been carrying around for the last five years. Um, mm. Quinn Hughes is doing it. We know that. Uh, it's, it's a real thing. And, you know, like if you just look at pure, this is one of the things we track, puck possession, puck on stick possession. Quinn Hughes has had it on his stick this year for 220 minutes. Carlson's next at 206, Dowdy's next at 193, and down the list you go, right? You talk about Quinn Hughes being asked to do a lot. Yeah, he's asked to do a ton. And, you know, I think about this when it comes to goalies, right? You could have a goalie that plays 60 games and a goalie that plays 42, and the guy with 42 might have slightly better numbers across the board. I'd rather have the guy with 60. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's especially, and you know, I, I, like, what keeps popping up into my mind, and you mentioned, you know, when the guy has the puck this much, don't look at turnovers so much. And I just making a cross sport comparison here uh, to the NBA, like, you know, who leads the league in turnovers every year or did for a long time, like LeBron James. It's because he has the ball on every possession, and he's asked to do so much <laughs> for his team. And it kind of reminds me, like, yeah, maybe to the ability to be efficient playing those sort of minutes and carrying that sort of load is, is so incredibly impressive. Cause typically like, you know, maybe somebody can be very effective in 18 minutes a game, but when you get up to 24 minutes a game, it starts to slip a little bit. When you're a guy who can sustain yep. it at that level in those minutes, that's the true kind of elite caliber across the NHL. A hundred percent. And it does get interesting when you have talked to executives about this as well. It does get interesting. When we talk about defensemen, you know, maybe smaller defensemen than average, how many can you have in your team and be successful? Mm. And um, you look at teams that have won cups recently. There's not a lot of them. Some would say you can't have more than one. Some don't even want one. Um, I think about Lane Hudson, who went third round to Montreal in the draft last season. Guy's tiny. He's, if he was 6'1", 180, he'd probably have been a top three pick. Um, I'm not saying, you know, go get him top three and, and every undersized guy is going to be incredible. But, the, you know, there's, there is some balance in there of trying to figure out what will translate and what won't, et cetera. Um, but w- when it comes to Quinn Hughes, like he's, uh, he's, one, he's one of the best defensemen in the league. He could absolutely win a Norris uh, in any given year at some point in his career. He's only getting better, too. He's still young. Uh, hey, Mike, before I let you go here, just one other thing I wanted to ask you about league scoring rates. We've talked a lot about it. And I mean, all you have to do is look at the scoreboard any given night, look at the individual numbers guys across the league are putting up. I think at the beginning part of the season, there was some question, you know, would it level off? Would it slow down a little? It really hasn't. Is this just kind of the new normal that we're going to be living with for the foreseeable future in the NHL? I think so. I think it could and kind of should be. Um, you remember when having a 20% power play was great? Well, yeah, you were like first in the league. It was like, wow, the fearsome yeah. power play, but it's clicking at 20%. Yeah. <laughs> now you're like 20th. <laughs> um, so, look, power plays have gotten better. And if you look at the last you know, 10 years, maybe, there aren't any teams left that really work the puck to the point as their primary option and shoot for rebounds and tips. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of teams 10 years ago. Uh, shot quality and the understanding of it and how to create it, it has in the last five, six, seven years really driven scoring rates to some degree. And I'll point this out because it's a pet peeve of mine. I think goalies have gotten probably a little too overcoached. Um, there's certain plays and, and times when they just play percentages as opposed to using their athleticism. 
I think that hurts them. I think players uh, can figure out how to exploit those situations and, uh, and are doing so. And I think, I think goalies will, will are, I know they are, and will continue to react to try to counter against that. And that's the cat and mouse game of goalie shooter. Um, and there's so much skill in the game. Now we've gone away from the fourth line fighting line um, to really guys that can play on every line. So I, you, you put it all together, um, you know, rules the way they are today, except for the way the game's called. Um, you put all these things together and it gets us to a spot that I think is great. Like you mentioned Vegas Edmonton and there's five goals in the first 10 minutes. There's crazy comebacks. Um, it's exciting, but oh, yeah. this is why, and I'll be proven right or wrong, but this is why I love a team like the Kings. Cause I think to some degree, if you can kind of smack down the trend in a way um, where, you know what, they know how to play great defense. And they might get tested against the best offense in the league in the first <laughs> round. It might be too much for them. I don't know. But I like that. So uh, I still think there's a place for, for players for sure uh, and teams that, that can defend well. Mike, always a pleasure uh, to talk a little hockey with another North Van guy. I appreciate it. Anytime. I don't know if that Galleria restaurant's still down it, there with the sandwiches. I, I, You know what? I haven't been in a few years, but I'm almost positive it is still there. I remember it fondly. Best sandwich I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> I miss them so much. Fantastic. A plug for the gallery. I love it. Thank you, Mike. There you go. All right, you. <laughs> that is Mike Kelly of the NHL Network and Sport Logic weighing in on uh, the playoff races and also about the season that Quinn Hughes is playing. And that Sport Logic data that uh, Mike was mentioning about Quinn Hughes, where he has literally just possessed the puck, had the puck on his stick more than any other player in the league this year. And it wasn't by a thin margin either. I think he said 220 minutes for Quinn Hughes, 206 for Eric Carlson. Then the next closest player, Drew Doughty, is down in like 100, the 190 minute range. That's a really significant gap from one to three in that stat when you think about it as, as a percentage term. And that really illustrates like we all know, okay, Quinn Hughes, at least until Philip Ronick, has been the only really competent puck mover for the Canucks this year. That shows you just how much they lean on Quinn Hughes on a night-in, night-out basis. And again, it doesn't, like, you can always, you know, a player can always improve, but everything we talk about, oh, maybe there's some turnovers here or there. Maybe, you know, he's not the ideal defensive player. It all has to be seen through that lens, through the way this team relies on him. And uh, Sam and Lake Couch in Texan, uh, during my conversation with Mike, exactly, that's why everyone in Vancouver should just shut the blank up about Quinn Hughes and his so-called defensive liabilities. Yeah, I think it's time to retire that conversation. I mean, it's been time to retire that conversation for a while now. The idea that Quinn Hughes, this massive defensive liability, and frankly, even if he was somewhat of a defensive liability, he's so good offensively that he'd outweigh it and still be a really valuable player. But he's also just not really a defensive liability, actually. Like, is he ever going to be your number one penalty killer? I don't know. Probably not. He already plays so much in every other situation. I'm not sure you want him to be anyways. Uh, but there is absolutely nothing about Quinn Hughes' defensive game that is going to hold him back. He's already established himself as a no-doubt bona fide number one defenseman in the NHL. And that's stat about him and how much he is on the puck Really, really impressive uh, to hear from Mike Kelly. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Final segment of the day coming up. We'll do 10 minutes of positivity. Yes, today with the Quinn Hughes talk, I have been very positive. I know people have been complaining. You're too positive, Jamie. Why are you doing 10 minutes of positivity? 
Well, I'm sticking to it. I can't go away from it when Drance is off and then expect him to come back and embrace it. I'm the one carrying this segment. I have to keep it alive. If I, if I give any opening to Drance to end 10 minutes of positivity, it's going to be gone. So I got to keep it consistent. I got to do it every day. That's my pledge to you. And we will do it in the next segment. If you have any contributions uh, for 10 minutes of positivity, you can get them in. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll get an update from Canucks practice and final thoughts for the show as well. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd. All by myself today. Drancer will be back tomorrow on the program. By the way, uh, it'll be an early and I believe an abbreviated edition of Canucks Talk. I think we're going to be on from 11 till noon tomorrow. It is, of course, the Toronto Blue Jays home opener. I'm stoked. I know all of you are as well. I'm a massive Jays fan. Uh, yes, but we will be on 11 till noon tomorrow when Drance makes his return. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Ten minutes of positivity coming up at 145 to wrap up the show. You can get your texts in, your submissions, your positive Canucks thoughts in, and I will read them. Got some good ones coming in already. Uh, before we get to that... Canucks are on the ice at Rogers Arena practicing. Our own Brendan Batchelor reports that Akito Hirose is on the ice for the Canucks, wearing jersey number 36. And if you missed it earlier today, and I mentioned this off the top of the show, talked about it a little bit, but earlier today the Canucks announced uh, that they signed NCAA free agent at a Minnesota State left-shot defenseman Akito Hirose to a one-year entry-level deal. Now, because of his age, he turns 24 in April. He could only sign a one-year deal. That's This season is the one year, so it expires at the end of this year. Uh, but he's an RFA, under team control, not eligible for an offer sheet, so the Canucks will be able to work out a new contract with him. Uh, and as he's playing for Vancouver now, he won't be eligible to play for Abbotsford this season in the Calder Cup playoffs. He's going to be up with the Canucks. And uh, first of all, you know, always good to see the Canucks. Like, there's always these two things you have to hold in mind. And I mentioned this when talking about Max Sasson to begin the week. Like, it's really good. It's good to sign NCAA free agents. You also have to keep your expectations in check. And the Canucks right now, I know last year in this cycle, they didn't get any college free agents, but they did sign some European guys, some CHL guys. It's a volume game. It's a numbers game. You sign a lot of them, you take your best bets, you make your smartest predictions about which ones are going to hit. Not all of them are going to, not even close, but you hope you get one or two contributors. And, you know, Hirose, you read the scouting reports, his strengths, puck moving, hockey sense, skating, not a big guy necessarily, but still able to potentially be a quality defender because of those other attributes, because of the way he thinks the game, reads the game and his mobility. You get a chance to add a guy like that into your system, even just to get a look at, you take it out all every day. Every day of the week. So good to see Hirose in the system, and good to see Hirose on the ice with the Canucks at practice. And it did get me thinking also. So they, they, they signed Aiden McDonough, who wasn't an NCAA free agent, but they added Aiden McDonough to the roster. Of course, he was their draft pick. They had the rights to him. 
They sign Akito Hirose now to an NHL deal, so he's with the NHL club. And we've talked a lot about Rick Tockett really amping up the minutes for the star players and the key players on this team. And obviously Quinn Hughes is the most notable, but obviously JT Miller as well, Elias Pettersson, even Philip Roenick now that he's come and joined the team has been playing big minutes right out of the gate. I do think, look, we're going into the final homestand here, right? There's not a lot of travel. I think they're home for they're home for over a week now. No back-to-back games in that stretch, a couple days before their next game. Now is the time to start to balance out these minutes a little bit. I know that winning is the most important thing. I'm not saying tanking. I'm not saying bench Quinn Hughes, bench Elias Pettersson, play them 10 minutes a game. But you've got some young players with question marks in the mix now. We've seen Aiden McDonough get one game, and he needs to get more. He needs to get more, and I'm sure he will, but now is the time to start really planning out what are we going to do with Aiden McDonough for the rest of the season? What are we going to do with Akito Hirose? I would even look at a guy like Vitaly Kraftsoff. And I haven't been particularly impressed with what we've seen from Kraftsoff. There's been moments, there's been flashes where you see the skill set and the upside that made him a highly touted draft prospect and draft pick for the New York Rangers. But there's also been really no production whatsoever to speak of, no consistency, not even consistently creating dangerous chances. But you got eight games here. And so even if you don't think you have anything in Vitaly Kraftsoff, like he played 10 minutes last night. That's mostly where he's been. This is the time to get those minutes up a little bit, see what he can do, maybe put him in a different offensive situation or two with different wingers, or sorry, with with different line mates. This is the time now to start finding out what you have in these guys. And maybe the answer with Kravtsov is, you know what? Not really. We, we took the free look at him basically with the seventh round pick and Will Lockwood going the other way. Didn't work out. Best of luck. That's fine. But you have to give it your best shot and get that information now. And I would say the same thing with Akita Hirose, Aiden McDonough. You can't, you're not going to pencil either of those guys in for an NHL role going into next season. But you want to have the most information possible about how they are likely to fit into your plans. Are these guys who are going to even be in the conversation for an NHL role or are they clear-cut, no, they have to start in Abbotsford? And you might not get a 100% answer to that, but you're going to have a much better chance if you give them some reps here down the stretch. And I, again, I completely understand that Rick Tockett came in and he wanted to not turn this season around because the playoffs were always going to be out of reach, but he wanted to start establishing things about how this team played, get them back to winning, get the players at least feeling a little bit better about themselves and their season. I think they've accomplished that, and I think now is the time to start turning your attention to other matters. I know Murph was on the morning show today and saying, like, guys are just going to be so much happier coming back for training camp because of how they've played down the stretch. It'll just make the summer feel so much less agonizing. And I think there's some truth to that, and that that has value, that has worth. But again, you've also kind of accomplished that, right? So let's lower the minutes for the Stars a little bit, bump them up for the young players, use these final eight games to learn everything you can about what you have on hand in some of these players going in to next season. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I've been talking all show about the exceptional performance from Quinn Hughes this season. Uh, This text comes in. As Kale McCarr is in this league, Hughes will never win its Norris Trophy. Well, Kale McCarr is not going to win it this year, and he's in the league. 
He's, Kale McCarr is not going to win 10 straight Norris trophies. I'm going to break it to you right now. That's not going to happen. He might be the no doubt about it best defenseman in the league for 10 straight years. Well, even that is obviously extraordinarily difficult to do. But he's not going to win six, seven, eight consecutive Norris trophies, right? Like, that's just generally not how these, these things go. The margins, even between Kale McCarr and other elite defensemen, are so, so thin. Injuries exist. Randomness exists. Yes, it's tough. Yes, you have to beat out Kale McCarr. That makes it really difficult to win a Norris, but that doesn't rule it out for any other individual player. Like even Patrice Bergeron that hasn't won the he hasn't won ten straight Selkies, and he's got the strongest hold on an award of anybody in the NHL over the last decade or so. There's still other guys who have broken through and won it. Uh, another text that comes in a couple of times. Uh, and this one is from Keith, who says, what's the money line for Hughes actually being this team's next captain? He's been a staple in the end in the game end press conferences. He's majorly stepped up with Horvat leaving. I don't think PD actually wants to be captain. That's from Keith. Well, I can't speak to whether or not Elias Pettersson wants to be captain. Pettersson speaks a lot to the media as well. You're right. The Quinn Hughes does too now. Also, obviously, they both started wearing A's. I do think, like, to me, Elias Pettersson... He's still the best player on the team. As good a season as Quinn Hughes is having, Elias Patterson is the best player on the team, figures to be the best player on the team for the foreseeable future. So to me, unless there are there's a really strong reason not to give it to Elias Patterson, you give it to Elias Patterson. But if Elias Patterson isn't that comfortable with it, not something that he necessarily wants to embrace, which I think is fine, by the way, if he has that conversation with the team, then yeah, sure, Quinn Hughes would be a great choice to wear the C. It's kind of like, you know, I was making the point earlier, whether you put them fifth at their position or eighth or whatever, they're top 10 players. They're bona fide superstars. And that's kind of how I look at it with the captaincy as well. Whether one's wearing a C and the other one's wearing an A or vice versa, this is their team now. They're the leaders. They're the best players. They're the guys who are going to set the culture. One of them is going to end up wearing the C. I don't want to say it doesn't matter at all, but it doesn't change the underlying fact that this is their team. The team is going to go as far as they take it ultimately. The team is going to build the culture that they help build. I think the good news is you've seen them, as as the texter Keith mentions, right, really step up and embrace that leadership role. But again, no matter who ends up serving as the captain for this team, there's no question about who the two leaders are, who the two best players are. It's Quinn Hughes and it's Elias Patterson. Uh, 650, 650, this one. Uh, Jazzy Texan, the difference between McCarr and the next best defenseman is nowhere near as big as McDavid and the next best player. And again, McDavid doesn't win the heart every year. He's going to win it this year, but he didn't win it last year, even though everyone still thought he was the best player. That's just how it goes. Uh, by the way, this text comes in again. I think it was the same the same person who texted in uh, about Kale McCarr who says, uh, McCarr may not win 10 straight, but Hughes can't. He's a liability in his end. No, he isn't. <laughs> what games are you watching? What games are you watching? I'm not even going to go into it. Well, actually, if you look at it, you know, he suppresses shot attempts better than anyone on the Canucks. You don't have to know a single thing about any advanced statistics to know that Quinn Hughes is not a liability in his own end. We really have to do more than just look at his height on the back of his hockey card and his weight and decide, oh, he's a liability. 
Go through, just, like, I hate saying this. I hate resorting to this, but watch the games. Watch what happens when, he, when Quinn Hughes is on the ice out there. He is not even remotely a liability in his end. I don't know what it's going to take for this to go away, for, this, for us to stop receiving this text. I don't know what has to happen, but please, please, can we all just agree for once and for all, he is not a liability. Gary and Cedar texts in, uh, regarding Quinn Hughes being a defensive liability, don't hold your breath. It took many Canucks fans about 10 years to figure out that the Sedins were more than, quote, second liners. That's from Gary in Cedar. Yeah, there is something to that. It, it, sometimes, you, sometimes you get pigeonholed. First impressions, I guess, make a big impact. Although, again, I would like go back to... Quinn Hughes' rookie season, I still think the idea, not that he was a polished defender necessarily, but the idea that he was all this massive defensive liability. I, I, I just, I've never really bought into it. And it's definitely still, definitely still not the case. And even less so uh, the case. Uh, this one comes down. Jamie, tone down the yelling. You're starting to sound like Drancer. The thing is, I go to it like when it's warranted. That's not my default mode. That's not my default speaking voice like it is with Drancer, but, you know, duly noted. I try to keep it in reserve for the moments where I really get frustrated. Uh, somebody else texts in, that guy's a liability in the text inbox. Yeah, but you need that. You know, the dirty little secret is when we're dunking on somebody in the text box, you kind of need that. You know what I mean? You need to mix it up a little bit with somebody, especially with Drancer not here. Oh, Oh, man, we've missed that over the last few days. <laughs> it's a good one. Oh. Oh, boy. That's what that's what my life is going to be again tomorrow. Start, starting tomorrow at 11. I'm back to that. Oh. Uh, 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Just uh, momentarily here. Before we get to uh, 10 minutes of positivity. Uh, hey, Jamie, what are your thoughts on PD for the Selkie this year? Uh, Patrice Bergeron is going to win the Selkie. The Selkie is really, really tricky. Like I, like the Selkie to me is the one where you have to watch the most hockey, like watch as much as possible as all, all of the relevant candidates and do a real deep dive into the numbers to really have a strong sense of who should be a Selkie candidate. And I'm just like, I'm not a voter. I haven't had a reason to do that. I have not done my Selkie deep dive. Is it plausible? Is it plausible that Elias or that Elias Patterson is a Selkie candidate at some point coming up? Yeah, absolutely. But for right now, uh, and this season, we'll see what happens in the future. It is Patrice Bergeron's uh, trophy to win or to lose, I should say, right now. Uh, all right, let's do it. You've got some good texts coming in. I've got one to start us off with. Let's finish the show with 10 minutes of positivity. All right, so I saw, uh, and I was listening to uh, Canuck Central last night, and, you know, Dan Riccio has really gone from Mr. Positive. Like, this segment could have been created to him, and now, all of a sudden, Rippin, he's, he's going negative a little bit. Dan Riccio has, uh, has taken a page out of Drancer's book, and the latest example of this is Riccio pointing to Andre Kuzmenko's league-leading shooting percentage. Uh, which is at 27.6% after a couple of goals last night for Andre Kuzmenko, and pointing out very fairly, I might add, that, uh, yeah, if you're expecting Andre Kuzmenko to 
repeat this type of performance, this type of goal-scoring performance, he's going to be very, very hard-pressed to do so with that sort of shooting percentage right now. And I'm not going to use my 10 minutes of positivity to say that Riccio is wrong, because he's not. He's right. Of course he's right! 27.6 shooting percentage! Nobody's going to repeat that! We got to understand that. And yeah, you can say, well, yeah, but he scores all these tap-ins and he plays with Pedersen. Yeah, that's true. He's still not going to shoot almost 28% over a full season. But that's not my 10 minutes of positivity. My positivity spin on it is the good news is that Andre Kuzmenko doesn't need to shoot 28% to still be a valuable player for this team. Like, even if that comes down, and, and I, look, it's not entirely wrong to say, well, could he have a high shooting percentage because of the way he plays, who he's playing with, his role in the power play, all of that. Yeah, there's something to that, but like high shooting percentage is like 18%. You know what I mean? That's still a big drop from where he's at right now. The good news is, even if he does see a big drop in his shooting percentage, he can still be a really valuable player. Like if he was shooting 18% right now, he'd still have like 28 goals. He'd be on knocking on the door of 30 goals. Would anybody be frustrated with that? Would anybody be upset with that or critical if that's where he was? So I guess my 10 minutes of positivity is don't rage against the reality that Andre Kuzmenko's shooting percentage is going to decline. It is. It's going to regress. That's what happens. If it doesn't, if he repeats this type of shooting percentage, it's one of the most remarkable stories we've seen in hockey in a long time because it is so incredibly difficult to do that. But just embrace that and realize that he's set a level of performance where he can afford to have that regression and still be a valuable, productive player. What, I, what I'm arguing for is taking a big picture view, right? Don't go on the roller coaster if you don't want to. You don't have to be over the moon jubilant about being on the upswing right now and then be devastated when, when it dips, inevitably. Look ahead, see that the dip is coming, but recognize that's okay. He's still going to be a good player, even when the shooting percentage inevitably comes down. And I will say, you know, you look at his stat line this year, 37 goals, 31 assists. There is room for him to decline as a finisher. You know, maybe he finishes around 30 goals next year in 82 games, but improve as a playmaker. And, you know, he has that playmaking ability, that vision, all of it, right? And if that's the case... If he has, you know, instead of the, if he has 30 goals and 35 to 40 assists next year, like that's still a really solid player. So you don't have to be scared about the inevitable Andre Kuzmenko shooting regression. Embrace it, accept it, be happy that he's still going to be a very, very productive winger uh, for this team going forward. 650, 650, it is 10 minutes of positivity, uh, a little bit of opportunity now to get some of your suggestions and your positive thoughts on the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Mr. Troy Jenkins texts in uh, for 10 minutes of positivity, two highly sought after NCAA players equals a pretty big win for Patrick Alvine. If we get Livington, it's a slam dunk. Well, the the reporting out there, and I don't have it in front of me, but you've kind of heard that they're not really in on uh, Jake Livingston, who is Akito Hiroshi's defense partner at Minnesota State, and I understand why there's been an attraction to Livingston, right-handed shot from BC, all of that. Doesn't sound like Livingston is going to end up for the Vancouver Canucks, but even just 
signing these two NCAA players, uh, it has absolutely. It's it's a good piece of business for Patrick Alvin. Now, these aren't, you know, when they signed Andre Kuzmenko, that was a guy who had at least star potential, even if we weren't sure how likely it was he was going to hit it. And literally every team in the league basically was interested at, to some degree in Andre Kuzmenko. That was a huge coup. That was a huge win to sign Andre Kuzmenko to his ELC this season. These guys, it's not quite in that same category, but it's still players that have options that are affirmatively deciding to join your organization. Even Aiden McDonough. Yeah, it's a little bit of a different category because he's your draft pick and you still own the rights to him, but he could have waited until August and been a free agent. They were able to get him in the fold and get him to sign that deal. And you just go back to last season, right? Like if you're looking for, you know, I've been plenty critical of Canucks management and some of the options they've made and some of the big picture strategy uh, that they've decided to take. But if you are just trying to find one area where they have been very, very successful, convincing these types of free agents, right, who are not high profile necessarily, but do have options. Just because they're not star players, there are still plenty of other teams who would have been interested in signing these guys. And that goes with Neil Zaman, right? Philip Johansson, even Dakota Joshua. Like, they gave him two years. They probably had to to lure him because there were other teams that were going to be interested. But that is a pretty impressive track record of convincing players that this is a franchise worth joining, right? Hey, I know we haven't had the success in the standings going to the playoffs, but this is still a place you want to be. This is still a place where we can help you have success. And that is a win. And again, who knows how many of those are going to be long-term pieces. I'm excited to see what Akito Hiroshi can do in the NHL. We don't know. But that recruitment pipeline and that ability to find those players, not in the traditional UFA market or through the draft, that's something that can be a really, really vital piece of keeping the talent flowing. Uh, Marcus and Gibson's text in 10 minutes of positivity. Our top players, Hughes, EP, Demko, are as good as any combo in the league. Hopefully they can play these minutes for 82-plus games next year. I mean, that's part of it. And I look at it, you know, Rick Tockett's kind of telling us what he thinks of the rest of the roster in a lot of way here, right? The fact that he is leaning on these players so much, the fact that Philip Ronick is already playing so much more than any other defenseman on this roster. And you just look at the gap. In minutes, right? Quinn Hughes played 28 and a half minutes last night. Philip Ronick played basically 24. The next defenseman down under 18. Guillaume Brisebois under 15. Like Rick Tockett is making it very clear who he trusts, who he has confidence in, and who he doesn't. They're not going to be able to sustain, sustain that over 82 games, though. You just you're you're not going to get this level of performance in those types of minutes over 82 games. They are going to find a way. Uh, they're, they're going to have to find a way to give Rick Tockett other options that he believes in that he can put out there for significant minutes because you have to find a way to manage those minutes for your best players over the course of 82%. Um, that's going to wrap it up for the show today. Uh, thank you for everyone for texting in. I'm just reading some of your uh, uh, some of your other 10 minutes of positivity takes that may or may not be mentioning Drance. But the good news is Drancer will be back on the show tomorrow. Again, it's going to be an early show and an abbreviated edition. We will start at 11. Thank you to everyone for listening. Shout out to Randeep and Mike Kelly for joining the show as well. Uh, it has been Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.